0: Hi, it's Nahani Rouse. Welcome back to Can We Talk? The podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive, where gender, history, and Jewish culture meet. This is the last in our three-part anniversary series, the 50th anniversary of the first woman rabbi in America. In 1968, Sally Prezand enrolled at Hebrew Union College, the Reform Movement's rabbinical seminary in Cincinnati.
1: Most people thought I came to marry a rabbi rather than be one, which had happened many times. Once I had been going out with one of my fellow students for a very long time and a professor went up to him and said, well, when are you going to do the school a favor, marry her and get rid of her?
0: They didn't get rid of her. And at Sally's ordination at Cincinnati's Plum Street Temple in 1972, her classmates spontaneously rose to their feet, when she was called to the Bima as the first woman rabbi in America. It was a triumph, but it wasn't the end of Sally's challenges. All 35 men in her class got jobs before she did. She got hired as an assistant rabbi, but was passed up for promotion. She got flack for her miniskirts and long hair, the style of the time. Eventually, Sally became the rabbi at Monmouth Reform Temple in Tinton Falls, New Jersey, where she stayed for 25 years until she retired.
1: Moses didn't get to go into the Promised Land, but he took great comfort in knowing that Joshua was following in his footsteps and would do his part. One of the things I've always been proudest of is that little girls can grow up knowing they could be rabbis if they want to. I've worked really hard not just to open the door, but to hold it open.
0: In this episode of Can We Talk, we speak with women from three different Jewish denominations who have walked through that open door about the challenges they've faced and about how their presence in the rabbinate is shaping the Jewish community. Rabbi Diane Kohler-Esses was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary in 1986. She's currently an associate rabbi at Romamu, Manhattan. She's the first woman rabbi from the Syrian Jewish community, a community Diane describes as having very traditional gender expectations. Growing up, her relationship to Jewish practice was complicated. As a teenager, she found a spiritual home at summer camp, where she especially loved celebrating Shabbat.
2: But the complication is I grew up in a very traditional community that wasn't necessarily or at least not uniformly observant. And my parents were not observant of Shabbat. And I came back and was completely disappointed by my home life. And I was really hungry for something that I could not find and could not get in the rest of my life. So I actually I went in the complete. Complete opposite direction. I disconnected from Judaism, even though I went to Orthodox Yeshiva. I failed all my <laughs> my classes in Judaism in high school and aced all my secular classes. I rebelled to the point where I would meet a friend on Yom Kippur at a diner and eat on kosher food. I went all the way in the other direction.
0: So what then drew you back and um, eventually drew you to the rabbinate?
2: So I, you know, as I said, I, you know, I went in the opposite direction, huge rebellion. By the time I got to college, I called myself an atheist Marxist, even though I didn't really know what those terms meant. And I started studying religion and I became turned on to the study of Judaism through studying religion.
0: And how did you see being a rabbi as something you could do when when you were growing up in the Syrian community? you had no other models of women who were doing that.
2: Not only were there no models of women becoming rabbis, there were no models of women working, <laughs> like I was supposed to get married at 18, right? And, and not work outside the home. So it was a huge leap on several counts. Right after college, I met a woman who was becoming a rabbi, Rabbi Sue Grossman, and I was just blown away. Really, I was just like, wow this woman is becoming a rabbi. It was just so mysterious to me and so powerful. And so she represented that possibility for me.
0: And what was the reaction of the Syrian community when you were ordained?
2: I mean, there was no collective reaction. Uh, Someone wanted to do an article about me, but I decided not to go in that direction because I didn't want to shame my parents. The one rabbi... Who I was fairly close to, who was fair, you know, on the modern end of things, uh, he told me that the community would boil me in oil. Not that he was behind boiling me in oil, but he, he just said the community would boil me in oil. And my parents, for all the years I was in rabbinical school, told their friends, "Oh, she's studying." They never said what. And when I told my parents, my father said, "Well, why don't you get married first and have a man put you through school?" and I told him I could put myself through school. And my mother said, you know, well, I can imagine you as a social worker or a teacher, but I I just, you know, I just can't imagine, you know, you as a rabbi. Mm -hmm. And she never could. Like, she never, she just died uh, this past August. And um, that was just something she, you know, she related to my getting married and having kids, but that was something she just really could not.
0: What was that like for you that she never really appreciated that?
2: Um I think it, it it contributed to a sense of invisibility. Like who I was could not possibly be real.
0: And what about what it's like to be a rabbi from the Syrian community in mostly Ashkenazi settings
2: yeah not only mostly but pretty much all you know it's interesting when I went to JTS I was like okay you know I came from this very narrow patriarchal materialist community I mean it has a lot to recommend it also but you know I felt like oh now I'll be liberated from my confines and when I went to JTS I found oh It's another narrow world, but in totally different ways. Like they knew nothing about non-Ashkenazi Judaism. And I remember um, one professor saying, I said to him, like, well, why aren't we learning anything about like Sephardic history or Muzrachi history? And he said, well, Ashkenazi rabbis don't really need to know about that. They're going to be serving Ashkenazi congregations. I'm like, really? And I remember um, once asking another professor why we sort of stopped studying... Sephardic Jews once they leave Spain. And he said to me, well, Sephardic Jews haven't really left the medieval age. I'm like, oh, (laughs) oh, Oh my
0: goodness.
2: (laughs) So, you know, I've always been like I was a stranger in a strange land growing up because I didn't really fit into my community. And that's it turns out like that's who I am. Like there's no context I'll ever be completely at home in. Just because I've uprooted myself from one and all the other ones like we'll never sort of acknowledge, you know, the wholeness of who I am in terms of my background.
0: And as you've been working as a rabbi, do you feel like that continues to be true?
2: Well, it's it's complicated. I mean, I bring my whole self in different ways. Like I very much relate to George Steiner, the 20th century philosopher saying text is our homeland. Like Torah itself, I feel provides a home for me and teaching Torah provides a home for me. But sort of the Ashkenazi culture and presumptions of Ashkenazi culture, I do not feel at home in. Going back
0: to rabbinical school, you sort of talked about, and you and you just mentioned that it was a narrow world in these other ways that you hadn't anticipated. But I've also heard you talk about how um, it became very clear that it was a world that was also built for male rabbis.
2: Yes, absolutely. So. In my senior year of rabbinical school, uh, the dean of the rabbinical school taught a class that sort of got into the logistics and practicalities of serving a congregation. And the the then dean put the schedule of the rabbi on the board. And I looked at the schedule and everything was really filled out, right? And I said, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi XY, um, where do you get ready for Shabbat? And he pointed to a slot, like on Wednesday morning. He goes, here, here's where you write the sermon. And I said to him, but when do you cook and clean and like prepare for Shabbat? And he was completely stumped. And I believe the reason why is the model of the rabbi was like the rabbi, the male rabbi and his wife. And the, the wife did all the homemaking. And, you know, the rabbi only focused on work. I think that's different now at JTS. That's nice, like strong sense.
0: Right. I mean, there was this conception of a pulpit rabbi that it was a totally all-consuming
2: job. Correct. And, and that, that remains true. I mean, I am an associate rabbi, and, you know, given the fact that I've got two kids with disabilities and a third with medical issues, you know, I cannot imagine being the senior rabbi at a congregation, you know, as a primary caretaker, or even just as a parent.
0: How do you think that women's participation has changed the rabbinate?
2: I think that women in the rabbinate have brought the Torah of the rest of life, not just like sort of cognitive Torah, but the Torah of what it means to be a full human being, a mother, an embodied person, just thinking about you know the Torah of cooking, you know Torah itself knows no bounds, and and the wisdom of life knows no bounds. And to bring that to the pulpit and to the community, I feel and I've experienced is very powerful. So the way I re- I teach Torah is we connect, over exploring you know certain sacred texts, but then sort of let the connections to our lives also bubble up.
0: Hmm. I love that. I love that. What do you hope for the rabbinate and and women's role in it over the next fifty years?
2: I would hope for new models of leadership. I would hope for you know much more shared leadership, um, and the work of you know home life and raising a family also to be more equally distributed. And I guess, you know, it it feels to me like what the world needs more than anything else right now is healing on so many levels. And there's something about women bringing their whole selves to the pulpit that in itself is healing.
0: Abbasara Hurwitz is the co-founder and president of Yeshivat Maharat, the first institution in America to ordain Orthodox women. She's also on the rabbinic staff at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale in New York. After college, she studied at Drisha, an institute for high-level Torah study. Sara said she never had an aha moment that she would become a rabbi, because as an Orthodox young woman, that wasn't really an option— but she always loved going to synagogue and being part
3: of the Jewish community. And actually, when I was applying to college, my parents wanted me to take a vocational test to see where my skill set was best suited. And the result of the test showed that I was destined for clergy. At the time, we all laughed because what was a young Orthodox woman going to do with that information? So I put it aside. I pursued other things. And then it took until my senior year in college to realize that I wanted to work within the Jewish community. And so I I went to Drisha, I studied there for three years. And when I graduated, I started working at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale with Rabbi Weiss, uh, just as a congregational intern. And after being there for a year, we both started dreaming about the possibility of what it might look like to be accepted as a full member of the rabbinic staff. We knew I would have to spend more time learning to be taken seriously and to be seen as an authority. And so I studied for five more years. And at the end of that, uh, we had a conferral ceremony and that's where I was ordained.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about the two of you
3: sort of dreaming this up together? Well, I remember it very distinctly. We were walking to Tashlech on a Rosh Hashanah afternoon to uh, get rid of those sins. And uh, we both started thinking about whether the community was ready. And I, actually my first instinct was, I wasn't sure that the community would be able to see me as their rabbi. Uh, Generally, the image of rabbi is male, maybe a beard, and I didn't fit that description. And so I wasn't sure that they would come to me for life cycle events, for moments of grief or joy. But then I became, I, I think we both realized that what drove people seeing me as their rabbi was relationships and so uh, while I was studying towards ordination I was also working in the synagogue and deepened relationships with with people and it actually became quite natural for them to uh, seek me out whether it was to perform a funeral for a loved one or or to uh, uh, co-officiate or officiate at a wedding Um, And so I think what we discovered is facts on the ground is that being present and showing that the work was in service of the community and actually not that controversial is what I think helped change hearts and minds.
0: So it sounds like you really felt a growing support for this in your immediate community, but I know that you
3: did face opposition outside of that community, can you talk about that? I think having the support of my community was key to being able to withstand and keep, keep putting one foot in front of the other. I remember I was ordained in 2009 and sort of a, a private ceremony at HIR uh, where we featured other women, other women teaching and teaching Tara. And it was really at that event that we realized that we wanted to begin Maharat. Um, people, women came up to me and said, how do I sign up? Um, yeah. And at that time, my title was Maharat. Maharat was, an, is an acronym. It stands for Manhiga, Hilchanit Ruchanit Taranit, which is the description of the job of a rabbi, a, uh, a leader in rabbinic and halachic and Torah values um, and pastoral values. And that felt like what I was doing. I think we, we understood that the Orthodox community was sensitive to language and title was the uh, the flashpoint. And uh, we determined that uh, that the community wasn't quite ready for rabbinic sound, sounding title. A few months later, we decided to change our title, my title to from Maharat to Rabbah, to better reflect what I was doing and who I was. And I, I wanted to help people see me as a rabbinic presence with that RB sounding word. When we changed the title to rabbi, it was because there was very little pushback to my job and what I was doing and we felt like there was certainly support from within my own community. Uh, But it was when that title change occurred was when there was a, a, a firestorm and the larger community I guess was concerned um, or feared, or actually I don't even really know all the reasons um, for what this might do for the future of orthodoxy. Actually, I remember I was in my office and the phone rang. I picked it up and somebody said, you're destroying the orthodox community. And he hung up. (laughs) And I didn't want to be the destroyer of the orthodox community, a community that I loved, that I chose to be part of, that I felt like I was contributing to and serving. And so there were many days in that, period that I wanted to crawl under the covers and not come out, but I, I think that with the support of, of Rabbi Weiss and with my media community um, and also receiving letters from young women who now could see themselves as potential rabbis or, or at least part of the Orthodox community as not just observers but participants within the community, uh, that's what propelled me to keep moving forward.
0: So it's the 50th anniversary of the ordination of the first woman rabbi in America. How do you relate to that milestone?
3: I think the story of Rabbi Sally Prisand and actually all of the first in the other movements, Rabbi Sandy Sasso, Rabbi Amy Alberg, are part of my story. I think that the breakthrough that they each created in their communities paved the pathway for for me to to have the confidence to begin a yeshiva and institution to ordain Orthodox women within my community.
0: Rabbi Prizand faced all kinds of challenges. She became a rabbi in 1972 and in the reform movement. And I know that you have spoken to each other extensively about your experiences. How do they compare?
3: There's a, a few points of comparison that stick out. The first is that she and I had a male counterpart, a male mentor who believed in us, Mm -hmm. and uh, had the courage to step back to make space for us to put their names on the line to help us move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we've both spoken about how hard (laughs) each of us had to work in order to be accepted that that the the women had to be seen as as better than some of their male counterparts. I I think that that one difference perhaps is that when the decision was made in each of the other movements to ordain women that became it wasn't a simple decision but that became a institution-wide decision. Um, and I think that in the Orthodox community with Maharat, it's much more of a grassroots organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that many parts within the Orthodox community are coming around to, to support. It's becoming much more normative. There's changes, vast changes in relation to professionalizing women's leadership roles in the Orthodox community, but the change is much slower. For a
0: long time, there was a perception I think in every movement of Judaism that the role of a pulpit rabbi should be all consuming, you know, and then there was this perception like how could a woman do a job like that and also have a family, which of course was the expectation. Um, And it's of course, you know, and it's pretty telling that no one thought to ask that question of male rabbis, like how can you do this job and have a family? Um, And I'm wondering if you also encountered this perception and how, how you dealt with it.
3: This is a live conversation for the graduates of Maharat right now, and I think it's a should be a community-wide decision around what the changing role of the rabbinate for, for those going into pulpits could look like. And I do think that it applies to men and women. Um, the idea that rabbis need to be available 24-7 makes it difficult for, for any person to, to to function and to um, really service the community in a, a productive and healthy way. I, I obviously believe that it's possible to to do both, to have a family and to have a pulpit and to be a rabbi. And I I am trying to create a communal conversation about how to create some shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's a more palatable job for anybody interested in pursuing this kind of service.
0: How would you describe your own Contributions to the rabbinate and to your community?
3: I would say my proudest contribution is creating a credential pathway for other women to pursue their dreams and their passion. I think there were several women uh, when I was trying to pursue the rabbinate that were doing it on their own, privately, secretly, um, begging, <laughs> you know, trying to carve out a role for themselves in a very individual way. And I think my dream was to create a, a normative pathway with the support of the community and institution behind them. And I think that's what Maharat did. You know, 13 years later, we have 50 women out in the field. We have 50 women coming up through the pike and it's very exciting uh, to see the the evolution of women becoming norm- more normalized and normative in, in the community.
0: So on this 50th anniversary of the first woman rabbi in America. What's your vision in
3: terms of gender for the next 50 years? The dream is to not only have to talk about women and women rabbis (laughs) and that gender um, isn't the defining factor of what makes a good or bad rabbi. I'm looking forward to the day where I don't have to make an argument for the fact that women belong Um, I know women belong, I'm looking forward to the time where I I don't have to uh, argue for my place in the community.
0: Rabbi Sandra Lawson was one of the first queer black women to become a rabbi. She was ordained by the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 2018, and then became Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life at Elon University in North Carolina. She's now the inaugural director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Reconstructing Judaism. Jen Richler spoke with Rabbi Sandra, who said that women like Alyssa Stanton, the first black woman to be ordained by the Reform Movement, and Deborah Bowen, who leads a black congregation outside Philadelphia, showed her that the rabbinate was possible for her. She also sees the first generation of women rabbis as role models, including Sandy Sasso, who was the first woman to be ordained in the Reconstructionist movement in
4: 1974. She laid the groundwork for me. You know, I wouldn't be possible without Sandy Sasso that first generation of female rabbis, you know, completely made it possible for, for me.
1: And Sally, uh, Sally Present, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting when you hear her talk is all the expectations she had to contend with of about how a rabbi should be and how a rabbi should look. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what expectations you've encountered.
4: I've had a variety of experiences that are that are tons of experiences that are positive. And also some of the negative ones you know, some of them are quite funny. I, you know, I'll lead services. And I've had people come up to me. Wow, that was a that was a normal service. I was like, yeah.
1: <laughs> what did what they I think expect- you were going to do? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really
4: don't know. <laughs> I really don't know what, what goes through people's minds when they see me as a black woman. Um, leading services and also keep in mind I'm black I'm a woman and I'm queer so I get the, intersection, the intersectionality of all those things which causes people to create new forms of discrimination um, I've also you know I mean I, I love my male brothers as rabbis but seriously some of the things that they can do and get away with that are just mediocre um, and, and, and not have it questioned at all um, and just taken for granted. Meanwhile, you know, I might be giving a drush or, you know, talking some Torah. <laughs> you know, um, and I'm not saying people shouldn't question I, I, I believe they should. But some of the questions, you know, that are just when I say some of the most basic things
1: like you would not question a male rabbi right. on this. Something I've come across in things I've read and heard is a certain discomfort with the idea of a woman as a rabbi. What do you think that's about? One of the reasons that people
4: say that they can't see a female rabbi, they, the woman's voice or woman, you know, leading, has a lot to do with the images that we have in our synagogues. A lot to do with the images that we still have in our in our liturgy, in our in our in our books. I can't tell you how many progressive so-called progressive communities I have walked in and I have seen art on the wall that all the art is a man with a beard, a black kippah, um, a a, a Talit and tefillin and some tiny little prayer book. (laughs) Nobody in the community looks like that. And then we wonder why uh, people say that they can't see women be rabbis or black people be rabbis or queer people be rabbis because these synagogues are still
1: beholden to an era that didn't actually ever exist in their community something else that you bring um, to the table i think is is the fact that you chose judaism right i guess i wonder you know how that has shaped your perspective on what it means to be a jew and specifically what it means to be a jewish leader adopting into
4: this tradition i got all the cool stuff but none of the trauma you know what I mean? Like I got trauma, don't get me wrong. I got queer trauma living in the United States and black trauma. But I didn't get the Jewish trauma. So I don't I don't approach Judaism in the same way. Mm. And so I didn't grow up with this tradition. I learned this tradition and I learned it the best way you can, I think as as a rabbi. And I have a broader perspective of things without all of the we have to do it this way because this is all this is the only way we've had to do it. For the longest time, you know, we only had one group of people looking at our text, leading services, translating our text, and those people were men. And let's just say that those people in the United States were white men. Um, and um, when you only have one lens, you only see things one way. When women in mass in the in the during the second wave of feminism started to be ordained as, you know, rabbis, cantors, educators, you know, PhD in Jewish studies, writing books, translating all that good stuff. Now, we're seeing all of our, our history and our religion and our text, not just through the eyes of men, but through the eyes of women. And so that
1: gives us a fuller picture of Judaism. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your social media presence, because, you know, you've been called a Snapchat rabbi. You've got a large following on various social media platforms. And I wonder if you see your social media presence um, as part of or an extension of your rabbinical work. um, And if so, how?
4: So um, I get kind of tired as a student of going on interviews for internships. I was frustrated because I'd go on job interviews, and people couldn't see past my race. And so what I started to do was um, I wrote like a a long bio um, or uh, created a Facebook page. I would write a cover letter, my resume, and I would send a link to my Facebook page or the bio or whatever. Both of those had a picture of me or a description of me. I knew that if I went on a job interview and they were shocked at <laughs> who was before them, they didn't read anything that I sent them. So I started using social media as a rabbinical student to share my experiences as a rabbinical student. Not necessarily just share my black experiences, but hey, I wrote this paper today on blah, blah, blah. Or, I, you know, let me, let me tell you what the Torah says about food. Um, <laughs> what I learned today in class. So that when I graduated from RRC, I wouldn't have to keep doing that. I was hoping that it would help me people would know who I are know at least either like oh you're that black rabbi that's fine but you know I'm a ra- you know I'm a rabbi <laughs> <laughs> and you know black right. people can be rabbis so that's progress so that's that is part of the reason why my platform has grown because I have used it to share my my experiences of you know being a rabbi and um to tell that story
1: what contribution would you say you're proudest of as a rabbi hmm.
4: Wow. um I, I wanna believe that I am showing people what's what's possible. And I'm I'm showing people how how radically inclusive Judaism actually is. And I say that largely because I still have a lot of young people reach out to me and say and old people too say things that sound like I left Judaism. I, get, I Seriously, I could show you my phone and I get messages like this regularly. I, I left Judaism, but you have shown me that it wasn't Judaism. I just had, you know, people who didn't see me. Wow. <laughs> or didn't validate my experience as a queer person or as a black person.
1: Looking forward, what do you hope to see? What do you hope to see as in the rabbinate as far as women's role, as far as queer people's role, black people's role?
4: There are some people out there who are very scared. They're they're scared um, because they feel like the, this diversity. They don't recognize Judaism. They're scared because you know um, you know there's more black and brown people out there, or more more women leading, whatever. And so, for some people, people like me are scary for that reason. There are other people who are not scared but uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with it and there's another group of people who like oh this is so awesome like
2: you're a rabbi
4: it's so awesome <laughs> people who can who want to say things like you're destroying judaism like no judaism is evolving that's what we do we've always done that that's what we did after the second temple was destroyed we evolved um and so the future of the rabbinate is going to have more women it's already happening there are more women i think enrolled in rabbinical school that outnumber men in some of these schools and people who want to continue to say that we're, that is destroying Judaism or that's actually by, by keeping these people out is actually going to destroy us if we don't embrace where we actually are um, we're not going to survive but instead, let's lean into what's actually happening the people who are uncomfortable I beg them, tell them like, just hold on That uncomfortableness you're feeling, I promise you it will get better. Just go with me after a while, you get used to it. Watch me lead services, watch me teach, you'll just get used to it. It won't be so bad. And also for the people who find it exciting, that's the future. Just as Rabbi Sally
0: Prezand held open the door for many more women rabbis to follow, Rabbi Diane Kohler Esses. Rabbi Sarah Hurwitz and Rabbi Sandra Lawson have inspired other women to pursue this sacred calling. Their diverse life experiences, their wisdom, and their commitment to Jewish life have enriched the rabbinate and the Jewish community. Thank you for joining us for Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. This episode was produced by Jen Richler and me. Our team also includes Judith Rosenbaum. Special thanks to Jenny Sartori for help with this episode, and to Rabbi Carol Balin for the excerpts of her 2021 interview with Rabbi Sally Prezand. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. You also heard Color Country by The Balloonist from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode concludes our anniversary series. You can learn about the history of the bat mitzvah in America and hear how a small group of women called Ezrat Nashim influenced hundreds of male rabbis, in previous episodes at jwa.org/slash can we talk. I'm your host, Nahani Rouse. Until next time.